0: Well, good morning, church. You have your Bibles with you. I'd invite you to open them to Galatians chapter 5, verses 13 through 26. Kindness and goodness. And kindness, really, it's a difficult thing to define, isn't it? What exactly is kindness? What exactly does it mean to be kind? And even though it's, it's hard to define, everybody knows when someone has treated them kindly or maybe even more, when someone has treated them unkindly. Everyone knows what it is. And in a sense, the same can be said about goodness. Now, of course, they, they can be defined, and we will define them biblically, but if you were to say This is what kindness or goodness looks like in practice. Or this is how you practice kindness. There are so many ways to show it, it defies confinement. Kindness and goodness have broad expressions that touch every action and thought and word. For instance, you can do many kind acts and not be a very kind person, can you? And you can do what appear to be good things, and yet the Bible says no one does good, not even one. And so these two fruit of the Spirit are, are difficult to pin down, and I think the reason why they're so difficult to pin down, is because they're, they're fundamental to what it means to be a Christian. They're, they're one of the base level fruits. You can look at a building, for example, and you can see the color of the building. You can count how many windows. You can see the slope and the size of the doors. But there is a foundation under it that you can't see. And kindness and goodness work as a foundation under all of the actions, the outward actions of a Christian. And though kindness and goodness express themselves in many ways, it's this foundational part that maybe eludes us. And so this morning we're going to make an effort to track it down and and of course, we're going to look at the way that some of these uh, things are defined biblically. But what we really want to get down to is what does the Spirit of God create in us when it is working kindness and goodness? So let's look at our passage this morning. Galatians 5, 13 through 26. The fruit of kindness and goodness. And the desires of the Spirit are against the flesh, for these are opposed to each other to keep you from doing the things you want to do. But if you are led by the Spirit, you are not under law. Now, the works of the flesh are evident. Sexual immorality, impurity, immorality, sensuality, idolatry, sorcery, enmity, strife, jealousy, fits of rage, rivalries, dissensions, divisions envy, drunkenness, orgies, and things like these. I warn you, as I warned you before, that those who practice such things will not inherit the kingdom of God. But the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Against such things there is no law. And those who belong to Christ have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires." If we live by the Spirit, let us also keep in step with the Spirit. Let us not become conceited, provoking one another, envying one another. Well, let's pray. Lord, thank You for this morning. Thank You for all of Your goodness and Your kindness towards us. I pray that we would not take it for granted, but that we would be able to always give thanks with grateful hearts. For what You have done for us and all the things that You have done for us. Lord, I pray that You would help us to see what the Bible calls us to and what Your Spirit is working in us and what You are like in kindness and in goodness. I pray that You would be with those yesterday who heard the Gospel at the pig roast. Lord, I don't know where the hearts of anybody is but you do and I pray Lord that you would work your salvation in them that you would give them the grace to believe what they heard that the fellowship we enjoyed together would speak to the reality of the love of Christ thank you Lord for your many promises for your many graces and for all of your goodness Help us, Lord, to leave this place with more thankfulness in our hearts for what you have done and who you are. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Well, so far we've been looking together at what it means to keep in step with the Spirit. We've seen the priority of love, the power of forgiveness, the person of Christ, the peril of being easily provoked. The presence of joy and the preserving that comes by peace and by patience. All of these things are the work of the Spirit in our lives as He transforms us into the image of Jesus Christ. And in one sense, it's really not so much a transformation as it is a restoration the ever seen with uh, old paintings, and as time goes on, the paintings become covered in grime and and residue as, as age wears on them. And then they take the painting and they restore it, and it looks as good as new. Well, there is a sense where the spirit of God is restoring us bit by bit to what we were originally created to be, bearers of the image. Of God in the world. We were made to be like Him. That's the goal. And in the beginning when God made all things, He made them good. Why did He make them good? Well, because the only thing that can come out of a good, kind God are good, kind things. And so the Spirit is at work in us to make us the kind of people who produce what is good and kind because we are being made at a heart, uh, core, spiritual level. In In the core of our beings, we are being made good and kind. Not kinder and gooder or better as if we were those things before, but now we, we excel in them. No, we were not those things before at all. We weren't kind or weren't good. We were cruel and we were bad. But God, through His Spirit, is making us anew. And one day, He will make us completely and totally new at the glorious resurrection of the dead. But in the meanwhile... And specifically this morning, he is at work to make us kind and good. So what does it mean to be kind and good? Well, first, kindness. And the word is very broad. It means upright, uh, moral, morally upstanding, or having integrity that manifests itself towards others. It meets the needs of others, and it avoids harshness and strife and enmity. It opposes the works of the flesh, that's kindness. It's a desire or an inclination of the heart to want the best for others. So a desire or an inclination of the heart to want the best for others even at our own expense. And so kindness does not seek to harm, does not cut others down it does not establish its own superiority over others it seeks what is best for others and goodness is a a uniquely Christian word it's the Greek word agathosuna and it's not found anywhere in ancient Greek writing except in the Bible four times and it has to do with and this might surprise you but it has to do with uh, inherent or intrinsic goodness a type of goodness that is deeper than action, but at, a, at the core of who a person is. They are good. And the emphasis here is that having been made good, they do good things. just like Jesus says, a good tree produces good fruit. And we understand that the goodness in us is from God, but it is in us nonetheless. And so it's not the same as as righteousness is being declared righteous as God is righteous, but it's we are being made good and so we do good things. The emphasis is on doing good to others. Uh, you could call it a goodness that comes from God and shows itself in spiritual and moral excellence. And these two characteristics, oh, they're different, they're so similar you can combine them. Both produce the same things in a person's life. They turn their desires in the same direction, to do good from others from a pure heart. And I believe the best way to think about them together is probably to think about what comes to mind when you think of godliness and what it means to be godly. What it means to be godly in your thinking and in your relationships. That's kindness and goodness. The Spirit producing godliness in us. And in the Bible, godliness... When a person is called godly, it always means that they have lived a kind of life that sets them apart from the world around them in terms of their moral integrity and their desire and seeking to do good to others. They're not like the world around them in which they live, but are aiming at becoming like God, to be good like Him, aiming to be good like He is good to us. And so there is a lot of overlap between these two words. Both possess a disposition of doing good to others. Both have to do with having right motivations for those good works. They both forbid a harshness and cruelness. They both seek the welfare of others. In fact, sometimes the word kindness is even translated as goodness. And so we will look at them together and how they express themselves. We'll look at the source of kindness and goodness, and some of the things that hinder them. And I want to begin with hindrances. right? So we'll look at that by way of negation. What is kindness and goodness by way of negation? Right? There are some things you can only understand by looking at what it's not. For example, we talk about infinity. Well, what is infinity? Well, nobody can really define infinity. They can just say, well, it's not finite. And so these are some of the things that help us to understand by seeing what it's not. And so, what kindness is not, or what hinders it, what prevents us from having this godly attitude and outlook? This is important, because if these things aren't dealt with, there can be no kindness. And so we've already seen forgiveness and joy and peace and patience. They all go together. It's hard to be kind to others when you're bitter. It's uh, hard to be good to others when you're joyless, combative, and miserable. But there are a few hindrances that will uniquely quench kindness and goodness in your own soul and towards others. And the first one of those things is carrying a chip on your shoulder. It's dictionary definition is a good one. It says, this is the, the definition, To have an angry or unpleasant attitude or behavior caused by the belief that one has been untreated, uh, treated unfairly in the past. right? So an unpleasant attitude, an unpleasant way of behaving because of something that's happened in the past. In the game of life, you got dealt a bad hand. And you're angry about it. You don't like it. And so you're unpleasant towards other people. Uh, in, a, in a way, because you think uh, because of what happened to you, They owe you, or you have a right to act this way. Well, that attitude makes it entirely impossible to be kind or good towards other people. Have you ever met a person like this? Probably a good word for them is paranoid. Because of some past event or some treatment they endured, they view everyone as a potential enemy. Every word is a veiled insult. Every kindness towards them must have ulterior motives. Everyone is out to get this person in one way or another, and nobody really has their best intentions in mind. And they view everything around them, and every person around them, with reservation and with suspicion. If you do that, if you live that way, forget about bearing the fruit of the Spirit. If you dwell on past wrongs and you live there, you're never going to get over it. And so you say to yourself, no, I I can't put this behind me. Listen, it is good news to hear this morning that that's not true. And that you actually can put the past in the past. And the burden that you've been carrying weighing down your soul can be cast off. It can. There are two things you you need to do in order for that to happen. Two scissors that will shear the, the ropes. And the first is you need to repent. You need to go to God and you need to ask for forgiveness. You say, well, why do I I need to ask for forgiveness if I was the one who has been wronged? Well, that may be true. You may be the one who was wrong. But listen, if you're angry at the hand that you've been dealt, ultimately you're angry at the one who arranged and dealt the deck. And if you're angry at the one who dealt the deck... You're angry at God, whether you realize it or recognize it or not. It's like, uh, it's like Israel in the wilderness. If you've read the book, of, uh, the book of Numbers and Deuteronomy, Israel's in the wilderness and they are angry at Moses and they're angry at Aaron and they're railing against Moses and they're railing against Aaron and God says to, to Moses, No, Moses, they're angry at me. I'm the one that they are railing against. They're just taking it out on Moses because they can't get to God. And they thought God had wronged them by bringing them up out of Egypt. And if they were in God's place, they would have done things better. They would have made a better God than Him. That's what the Israelites complaining was suggesting, right? That's why God responded as severely as He did. They were telling God that We are wiser, we are kinder, we know better, we are more loving, we are more caring, and we would make better gods than you. We wouldn't be feeding us manna, we'd be giving us all the treasures of Egypt. That's what the grumbler does. That's what the chip on the shoulder represents, a suspicion of God. And it's sinful. It's an offense to be confessed and to be repented of, far more than it is a wound to be nursed. And that's probably the hardest part, is realizing that what is happening, your, your, your sour outlook, is actually born out of resentment towards God. But the second part, that's one sheer, here's the second, and it's much more uh, pleasant to talk about. And that's to recognize, if you're a believer, your identity in Christ. You are a new creation in Him. And you are, year by year, being made new in Him. What's that mean? Well, for one, it means you're not defined by your past. You're not a a slave to it anymore. You've been set free from it. You've been lifted above it. And now it has no longer any controlling power over your life. Christ has shattered the chains that held you and you don't need to be defined by some unfortunate past event or past life, no matter how life-altering that may have been. Now, you have a new identity and a new walk and a new way of living in Christ that frees you from the burdens of the past. It's not who you are in Him. And you can trust Him. And you can trust Him. What He said, His Word, that whatever did happen then, as unpleasant as it was, God is working it for your good and for for His glory, and you can believe Him. So you're not defined by your past, good or bad, but are defined as a man or a woman in Christ. And that frees you to both Repent of and be released from the trauma of your past. You are able to put your past in its proper place. You're able to be like Paul who says, forgetting what is behind, I press on. You think Paul had a lot to be sorry for? He hunted down Christians and had them put to death. He says, I'm the chief of sinners. He railed against God. Women and children put in prison. He says, I can't, I can't live there. I forget that. I put that behind me. I put the past in its proper place. I repent, and I believe who I am in Christ. And he goes forward. When that happens, that sets you free. Not just to be kind, but to have peace and love and joy abound in your soul. And so if you have a chip on your shoulder, Christian, don't tolerate it and don't stand for it. And don't think that it's part of who you are. It's not. Get rid of it as soon as you can before it turns into a boulder and crushes you. You don't do that by ignoring it, and you don't do that by just getting over it. You do it by being set free from it, by confessing the wrongness of it, not by dwelling on it, not by stewing on it. And you believe instead that you are a new creation in Christ. Second hindrance that was one dwelling too much on the past second hindrance pettiness I know there are many places we could have gone I had to pick somewhere and so I picked pettiness because pettiness is much more malicious than you think if kindness is most fundamentally desiring good for others and goodness is possessing the possessing the virtue to do that good pettiness opposes it and you know what I mean by pettiness Right? Someone who always has to be right, is always criticizing, is always correcting, and can never seem to overlook anything. But kindness, it covers sins. It covers errors. It doesn't have to be right all the time. Now, I'm not talking about gross and heinous sins, right? Love does not indulge in those. It exposes them. It deals with them gently, to be sure, but it deals with them nonetheless. deals with those sins that would destroy the community of faith or imperil the witness of a Christian or threaten their well-being or threaten their family. And the Bible clearly distinguishes between those kinds of sins that destroy and the daily, normal struggles that all Christians face. Yes, all sin is terrible, don't misunderstand, but not all sin is the same. Pettiness does not make that distinction. It's always correcting, always rebuking, always disapproving, never overlooks, and often the person who is is doing this, who's petty, sees it as a display of their own righteousness. I'm a Christian now. I hate sin. I must crusade against it, all of it, all the time, and not let a single offense against me or against God go unrectified. That's probably a sign of immaturity more than it is of maturity. So if you feel the tendency or the pull to criticize every little thing or correct people for all of their wrongs, you don't have to. Right? It's, it's not a sign of zealousness to always correct, and it's not a sign of lukewarmness to cover sins. It's a sign of immaturity. You, you, you know what sin is, but you haven't yet grasped what love does. And so if it's some small thing, if it's not a matter of, of serious, biblical, doctrinal faithfulness, maybe you ought to just overlook the offense. Now, one of my favorite examples of this is from... Uh, Dale Carnegie's book, How to Win Friends and Influence People. And I heard it by way of R.C. Sproul. He was telling the story. He says it was an Australian pilot from World War I, and he was being honored at a, at a banquet for some exploit of his. He flew halfway around the world or something. And uh, Mr. Carnegie in his book relates being there, and he says this. So this is the quote from, from the book. It says, I was attending a banquet one night given in Sir Ross's honor. That's a pilot. And during the dinner, the man sitting next to me told a humorous story that hinged on the quotation, there is a divinity that shapes our ends, rough human them how we will. The raconteur mentioned that the quotation was from the Bible. He was wrong. I knew it positively. There couldn't be the slightest doubt about it. And so, to get a feeling of importance and to display my superiority, I appointed myself as an unsolicited and unwelcome committee of one to correct him. He stuck to his guns. Why, from Shakespeare? Impossible. That's absurd. The quotation was from the Bible and he knew it. Well, the storyteller was sitting on my right, and Frank Gammond, an old friend of mine, was seated at my left. Mr. Gammond had devoted years to the study of Shakespeare, and so the storyteller and I agreed to submit the question to Mr. Gammond. Mr. Gammond listened, kicked me under the table, and then said, Dale, you're wrong. The gentleman is right. It is from the Bible. On our way home that night, I said to Mr. Gammond, Frank, you knew that quote was from Shakespeare. Oh, yes, of course, he replied. Hamlet, Act 5, Scene 2. But we were guests at a festive occasion, my dear Dale. Why did you feel the need to prove to the man that he was wrong? I have to struggle with this all the time. I don't know how many times I hear you don 't have to correct everything or be right all the time, that 's not my wife telling me that 's me telling me and reminding myself <laughs> i don 't always have to correct or prove a point. Right? I remind myself all of that. I, I ask myself, "Do I really need to do that?" And it 's usually not, "Do I really need to do that it 's after I 've done it. And I said, "Did I really need to do that?" it 's not kind, and it 's not good. it 's very unkind because it is asserting one's own superiority at the expense of somebody else. And so it's not the truth of God that's at stake. It's not the destruction of a a person that's at stake. It's a small thing. And when I confront that, I know I'm lacking kindness. I'm not seeking the good of the other person. I'm seeking my own exaltation at their expense That's pettiness, and that's why it's so opposed to kindness and to goodness. In fact, doing something good to another person after treating them this way, that just rubs salt in the wound, doesn't it? It it patronizes them. It only serves to further humiliate. So don't be petty. You can overlook a multitude of sins and and let the little things go, and, and don't exalt your own superiority at the expense of another person but lift them up at your own expense. One more hindrance. And this most accurately is the opposite of kindness and goodness. You think, what's the opposite? It's not meanness or cruelty or malice. It's envy. Envy and jealousy are at the extreme opposite end of kindness and goodness. You say, why is that? Well, because envy does not just want what somebody else has. That's, that's of course, the expression of envy and jealousy. It's the outward manifestation of envy and jealousy, but envy and jealousy are much more than that. It's, It's selfishness in the extreme, really. It's the total inability to rejoice at the blessings or the good that happens to another person Because the only thing that you can think of is that it didn't happen to you. And so if kindness is the desire to see good done to others, then envy is the desire to have that good done only to you and it resents others if they receive it. God hates envy. It's a a cardinal sin. It's in the top ten, right? God regards it as extremely destructive to society, extremely destructive to relationships. It's it is utterly impossible to think any kind thoughts or do any good deeds when envy has a foothold in your heart. And if you think that's oh, just envy, it's no big deal. James 4 2. You desire and you do not have, so you kill. You covet and cannot obtain. So you fight and you quarrel. I mean, how many wars are fought over envy? I want what they have. I can't rejoice at what they have. The only time I can rejoice about it is when it's in my possession. And so armies march in. How much political division in the world can be traced right back to this? One group is envious of another either their position or their possessions, and they're warring against them. This is what produces wars where hundreds of thousands of people are killed. This is why husbands and wives fight each other. One of the reasons, envy and jealousy. Theft is a result of jealousy. Nobody ever stole what they didn't see and want first. And instead of rejoicing... Instead of rejoicing that God has blessed another person, people froth with unholy anger, certain that God has wronged them by giving someone else and uh, what they desired and doing good to them. This is why envy and jealousy, why covetousness and are so out of place for the Christian. We ought to be able to rejoice when good things happen to other people. We ought to be able to rejoice when others are advanced, even if it's at our own expense, even if it's something that we want and it's given to them. So, a truly kind, truly Christian attitude is this You and your coworker both want a promotion at work, and he gets it, and you don't. Kindness rejoices for that coworker. Genuinely, sincerely. You want something and you're saving for it. Your friend gets it first. There's none left for you. You rejoice for them. This is kindness and goodness. A a good thing, a blessing. It happens to your neighbor, to your spouse, not to you. And even though you wanted it more than anything, you rejoice. Because the Spirit of God responds joyfully when it sees good things happen to other people and that's the essence of kindness it never asks why do good things never happen to me it doesn't lament always the bridesmaid never the bride because a kind spirit listen a kind spirit finds as much joy in good happening to another person as it would if that same good was happening to them That's at the root of it. Loving others is better than yourself. Kindness and goodness do not only oppose misery and pettiness and envy, they actually produce something. And it's probably the clearest way this attitude of kindness and goodness expresses itself, and that's by benevolence towards others. And that word benevolence, you could just think of it as doing good. Kindness and goodness are expressed by doing good to other people. And if they aren't expressed, they aren't real. James, again, chapter 2, 15 and 16. If a brother or sister is poorly clothed, lacking in daily food, and one of you says to them, go in peace, be warmed and filled, without giving them the things needed for the body, what good is that? It's no good at all. When you see a person in need or you hear of a need, as a Christian, we ought to do good, not just desire good or wish well. In fact, it's one of the reasons we've been given the possessions that we do, to share them and to be generous to others. Not only that, it furnishes the Gospel. I mean, Proverbs 18.16, a man's gift makes room for him and brings him before the great. You're doing good to others and seeking their good above your own It might surprise you, but that actually endears people to you and maybe inclines their ears to your message. It puts you in good standing with others, even if they don't believe you. They'll respect you because of the kindness you've shown them. Kindness and goodness open doors for the gospel. 1 Peter 2.15 For this is the will of God, that by doing good you should put to silence the ignorance of of foolish people that's the will of god did you know that you want to know what the will of god is for your life at least one aspect of it there are others but one major aspect that your good works will silence those who accuse and oppose christianity you know, sometimes we think it's, uh, it's apologetics and wrangling over words that really will make an impact on our accusers. I, I think it was Calvin who said apologetics, right? arguing for the truthfulness of Christianity. He said it cannot convert the soul, but it will close the mouth of the obstreperous. And that's true. But in this case, actions speak louder than words. Because if you win the debate, you win and he loses and his opinion remains unchanged. But if you show your opponent kindness and you're active in good works, that's what will silence him. That's what will cause him to take pause and consider how you practice what you preach. I forget who was telling me. Uh, Someone came to a church much like our own and after the service, uh, everyone was still together. They were enjoying each other's company. They were loving one another, doing good to one another with their time and with their uh, company, with their affection and the person said something along the lines of if Christianity can produce this kind of people in this kind of world, there must be something powerful at work because God is glorified and God was glorified and the accusations of His enemies silenced by the kindness and goodness of His people. Matthew 5.16 It says, In the same way, let your light shine before others that they might see your good works And give glory to your Father who is in heaven. Our good works give glory to God. Why? Well, because we represent Him. And we do our good works in His name, and He receives the glory. I want you to think about this for a moment. I want you to think about what I'm about to say, because it's very important. It has a tremendous impact on how we think of generosity as as Christians. We talked about that last week, Christian giving and, and generosity. Think about this. I want you to imagine that you have a great need before you. Now, maybe it's personal, right? You're struggling to pay the bills. Maybe it's benevolent. You're trying to raise money for the poor. Maybe you're in charge of a ministry. You need funds. And then a wealthy philanthropist, he hears of it, hears of the need. And so he dispatches one of his employees, one of his managers, to come to you in the company helicopter it lands in your yard, man gets out, comes forward, hands you a check which exceeds the need that you are facing, and now you are left with an abundance. Now when he does that, who gets the glory? Does the employee or does the one for whom he works? Well, it's the one who he works for. It's the name on the check, the name that's on the transportation. That's who receives the praise. The manager is just the messenger. He isn't giving anything of His own. He is providing to you out of the abundance of His Master. And the Master gets the glory. Now in that example, if you were to place yourself in there somewhere, where would you be? Now I imagine most of us would think that we were the recipient of the check. Right? We're the one in need. That's not you. You're actually the messenger the steward of God coming in the company transportation to distribute the abundance of your Master. That's the Christian. And all that you have and all that you possess has been given to you, yes, to meet your needs, but the superior reason is to make God look great and to show Him as more precious and more valuable than anything that in this world money can buy. You are His stewards in the world, and what you have has been given to you by Him and for Him. And it's not just money, it's time, skills, words. All of it has been purchased by Christ and restored to you for the doing of good. This stores up a great inheritance for you in heaven. Your good deeds give glory to God who is supremely benevolent. And the way that they give glory to God is by reflecting what God is like. It reflects our kindness and our goodness show the world around us what God is like. Genesis Genesis 1-2, the creation. Everything God makes, He makes good. But have you ever asked, why did God make it? What benefit does God personally derive from creating? What is added to God that He did not already possess? How is He increased? He's not. By creating the universe, God gains nothing. So do you know what creation is? In one respect, it is the undiluted benevolence and goodness of God. We say, I thought it was for His glory. These things are not opposed to each other. When God's goodness is displayed, God is glorified. And what did He create? He created a world without pain. He created a world where His creatures' needs were always met. He created a, a perfect world with perfect everything, and it was good. It was an outpouring of His goodness. He created humanity. He created this world as an expression of His kindness. He made a world and people to live in bliss and in joy. And when His people are joyful and rejoicing, even though it adds nothing to Him, He rejoices too. Let me give you an example. It's like when a father gives a gift to his child and the child says, Thank you, Dad. And they run off and they enjoy the gift. The father gains nothing, but doesn't his heart rejoice when he sees his son enjoying the gift? He delights in the joy of his children. He delights in the joy of his creation because he is supremely kind and supremely good. This is why kindness is rejoicing in the good that happens to others, why envy is so opposed to it. An inability to rejoice in the goodness that happens to others. God rejoices over us, the Psalms say. He delights to see good things happen to other people. Psalm 145, 8 and 9. The Lord is gracious and merciful, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love. The Lord is good to all, and His mercy is over all that He has made. All your works shall give thanks to you, O Lord, and all your saints shall bless you. How many times in Scripture do we read of God being gracious and merciful, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love? He is. And not only to the elect. The Lord is good to all and He has mercy on all that He has made. God really does do good to the entire world, not just Christians. He shows the world mercy. You say, how does God show the world mercy? Every sin. Every sin that a person commits. The moment they do, what should happen? They ought to drop down dead and descend into hell. The soul that sins shall die. Jesus told, or God told Adam and Eve, on the day that you eat of the fruit, you will die. That's what ought to happen. That's what every sin deserves. Big ones and small ones. Well, maybe you think, well, that's a bit harsh, huh? Every sin. That's not what happens, is it? People sin. And they sin against one another. They sin against nature. They sin against God. And then they sit down in the evening and enjoy a good meal. And they enjoy the laughter of their children and they lay their heads down on their pillows secure. They have a good night's rest. They work at a job where they can make a living, and the uh, interruptions of crisis into their life, like natural disasters or, or fatal accidents that cut life short, are actually so rare that they're shocking. And you realize that this is the mercy and kindness and goodness of God. He doesn't send all of us to death and hell forever the moment that we sin, He doesn't give us immediately what we deserve. But he is patient with us. He is merciful. And some are even saved by his mercy and spared from hell altogether. And what did God gain? What does God gain from being merciful? What did God gain from saving you or from saving me? In gain anything. I mean, I'm a debt to God that he had to pay. He didn't gain anything from being kind to me. He just was. God is merciful and God is kind. But He's not just merciful. He's not just overlooking killing people and sending them to hell. He actually does good, life-giving, life-sustaining things for all people whether they love Him or not. Matthew 5:43 and 44 or 43 through 45 You have heard that it was said, you shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I say to you, love your enemies. Pray for those who persecute you so that you may be sons of your Father who is in heaven, for he makes his sun to rise on the evil and on the good, and he sends rain on the just and on the unjust. God loves his enemies. God does good to His enemies. How do you know God does good to His enemies? Every single morning the sun rises and gives light to the world. What would it be like to live in total darkness? I mean, listen, if you had enemies and it was within your ability to plunge them into total, absolute darkness so that they couldn't see their hand in front of their face, if you could do that, would you do it? If you were the one who gave them life and upheld them and yet they railed against you, denied you, hated you, killed your children, would you bless them? Or would you send them rain? What's that mean? That means he sends crops, food, he nourishes them with life-giving sustenance. And not only that, it tastes good. You 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 realize right? Food could taste like the dirt that it grows from. It could taste like the worst prison food you could imagine, dungeon gruel. I mean, have you ever once thought of that? The kindness of God manifested in the fact that our world is colorful and that food tastes good. It didn't have to be that way. It could have been very different. Everything could have been gray and bland and awful and God could have sucked every ounce of joy out of the world the moment we rebelled against Him. And yet even the pagans and the atheists enjoy and participate in the goodness of God. Don't you see that in the life of Christ? He feeds 5,000 knowing that in a very short while most of them will turn against Him. He heals ten lepers knowing that only one is going to return and thank Him. He nurtures Judas for three years and washes his feet knowing he would betray Him. He dies for His disciples knowing they would abandon Him. And He does it because He is good. It's just goodness and kindness coming out of Him, overflowing from Him. He seeks to do good to others regardless of what He gets in return. That's who He is. James 1.17 Every good gift and every perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of lights with whom there is no variation or shadow due to change. And what does this mean? Every good thing that you enjoy. Every good thing that anyone enjoys. Ever. Ever. Anywhere, from the tribesmen in the Amazon jungle to the businessman in Manhattan, from the Muslim in the Middle East to the atheist communist in China, every time they enjoy a bite of food, every time they get a good night's rest, every uh, time they have the satisfaction of a job well done, joy of a child, comfort of a spouse, deliverance from calamity, it does not matter what it is, every good thing that they enjoy comes to them from God. And every good thing you enjoy comes directly from His hands. And this kindness of God, what's the goal? It's to lead people to repentance. That's the reason why we, cooperating with the Spirit, work kindness and goodness, not just to give glory to God, though that is supreme, and not just for the good of those who receive it, and not only to store up treasures in heaven. But to store up people in heaven. And when the world around us sees our patience, sees our kindness, our generosity, and our goodness, they see in a small, limited, feeble, but real way, they see God at work. They see His hands and His feet and His mouth and His heart. And so, how should people respond to the goodness and kindness? We'll close with this. Romans 2, 4-8 Or do you presume on the riches of His kindness and the forbearance of His patience, not knowing that the kindness of God is meant to lead you to repentance? But because of your heart and impenitent heart, you're storing up wrath for yourselves on the day of wrath when God's righteous judgment will be revealed. He will render to each one according to His works to those who by patience in well-doing seek for glory and honor and immortality, He will give eternal life. But for those who are self-seeking and who do not obey the truth, but obey unrighteousness, there will be wrath and fury. For those who do good, who love Him, who are patient in well-doing, who are thankful, there will be glory and honor and eternal life. But for those who do not, and who take His kindness towards them for granted, who never give thanks, who assume that God just turns a blind eye to my sin, or worse, to deny against all reason and conscience that God even exists. God is not real, and if He is, He doesn't care about the evil that I do. To say, yeah, the sun will rise tomorrow just like it did today. If God's up there, He's tolerated for me for these 20, 30, 40, 50, 15 years. He's been good to me even though I have not been good to Him. I've spited Him. I haven't thought anything about Him or about His Son. Nothing at all. What will happen to people like that? There will be wrath and there will be fury. And all of those good things that you did not give thanks for, all of His kindness, every enjoyable meal, every comfort, good company, a nice vacation, you'll have to answer why you took the kindness of God for granted. You have to answer why. Why even this day you heard You were told about how good God is towards you. It was brought to the forefront of your mind and then you said, okay, no thanks, and walked away. You'll have to explain to Him why when you heard that all of the goodness you have ever had in this life coming from the hand of God, why you continued to ignore Him. He has done all of this to show you, even to convince you, that He is good. And He is good to you. There is not a single person in this room whom God has not been good to. And if He's good to you now, when you have no concern for Him whatsoever, will He not be good towards you if you come to Him, not for a good meal or for a good time or for a good lap, but come to Him in repentance and faith for eternal life? Will He not be kind if you come to Him for forgiveness? If He has been kind to you so far? He will. He will. Every, everything you have already received, every day of your life, the goodness of God at work in you to show you that God is good. Every day so far that you have lived, you have been the recipient of His kindness towards you. You say, how? The sun rose this morning, didn't it? And God has done this so that you would see it and that you would believe and be led to Him, to love Him and to give yourself in faith to Him. So the kindness of God towards you towards you your whole life so far. Let it assure you that if, if you come to Him, He will continue to be kind to you. Let the kindness of God that you have so far, so long enjoyed lead you to repentance and faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. Let's pray. Lord, thank You that You are kind and merciful. Thank You that You delight to forgive. Thank You that You delight to show kindness. Thank You that You delight to save. Lord, there is no one like You in heaven or on earth or under the earth. There is no one who can compare. And Lord, I pray that when we see You in Your Word, that we would know it's that same Spirit, Your Spirit, that is at work in us. And I pray that we would not be content with a kind of kindness or goodness that falls short of what we have received, but that, Lord, we would forsake envy and be able to rejoice more in the goodness that happens to others than in the goodness that happens to us. That we would have more joy and more rejoicing when others are blessed than when we are blessed. That we would really believe it is more blessed to give than to receive. Lord, I pray for anyone here who does not know You. Lord, that they would consider all of the good that they have experienced in this life. And that they would realize it has come to them from You. Not from fortune. Not that they're lucky. Every good thing that they have ever enjoyed has come from Your hand. And I pray, Lord, that they would see it that way, that they would be thankful for it, that they would come to You, Lord, in thankfulness and repent of their unthankfulness and put their trust in Christ who forgives all of our ingratitude and makes us new. We pray these things in Jesus' name. We have no hope outside of Him. Amen.